First Peter Bible Study, Part 6 Virtue Ethics and Church Conduct For lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from First Peter chapter 1, verse 22 to chapter 2, verse 3. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. St. Peter has just gotten done instructing Christians to gird the loins of their minds, or be ready for action on account of how they are already saved. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 21. The conduct that comes from a believer's mindset. Because you're saved, you don't live like you used to. You don't live this slovenly, ignorant life of a pagan anymore. Instead, you properly fear God and get yourself ready for all good works. But with that, we have this motif in the book of First Peter on the interaction between the gospel and the third use of the law. You see, the gospel says that the believer is saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, and the atonement which he worked for all of us, our sins being forgiven by his blood, our justification coming from his resurrection. The third use of the law says to the believer, Okay, pal, now that you've been saved, I'm not going to accuse you anymore. But instead, let me walk alongside you and show you how to move forward from a grateful heart. Now, St. Peter highlights how the gospel here is serving as the motivation for using the law as a guide, spurring us on to perform good works. But then the question is going to arise at what kind of good works he wants us to do. What exactly is he wanting us to do? And why am I not seeing something specific like tithe your money on Tuesdays or whenever you see an old lady crossing the street, carry her groceries for her and make sure nobody hits her with their cart. He's not about that. Instead, St. Peter wants to bring up positive character traits and dispositions or virtues. If you foster these, then you'll develop a kind of instinct from which a lot of good works come. If you're a better person overall, a more virtuous person, 
you will naturally do what you're supposed to do. So in both of his epistles, 1st and 2nd Peter, he presents us with what you would call virtue ethics as a central part of Christian morality. Now you might wonder why he's bringing this up. What's the occasion? Remember that St. Peter was involved with the early battles against the Judaizers. The Judaizers demanded that all believers strictly follow the Old Covenant, you know, getting circumcised, doing the sacrifices and all that, in order to be saved. Their argument could have been something along the lines of specificity, too. They might have said that since the command to gather together as believers is found in the Third Commandment, without the regulations found in the Mosaic Code, then Christians may very well neglect the Sabbath. So you need all of the little commandments and explanations in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But in the virtue ethics of St. Peter, the reply would be that a Christian who is committed to loving God and loving his fellow believers would desire to go to church without being hounded by the hundreds of commands from Moses. Now this doesn't mean that the Christian never needs specifics. After all, we have the Ten Commandments, and these Ten Commandments explain the two greatest commandments, which are very, very, very broad. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, if that's all you're told in terms of Christian ethics, you're not going to understand what that looks like in practice. So, we have the Ten Commandments that tell us what to do. How do I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Well, I have no other gods before him. I don't take his name in vain. I observe the Sabbath, which for us Christians, is listening to the word with gladness. And I uh, honor my father and my mother, whom God has put in charge over me. And whoever does the job of a father and mother, that includes civil government, all of that. Of course, the Ten Commandments have endless, endless applications everywhere. But with those, we have enough specifics to understand where we're supposed to go. So why doesn't St. Peter then just say, Dear Christian, you have less rules than the Old Covenant would have had you follow. And just leave it at that. Just Ten Commandments and the Two Greatest Commandments. Uh, follow Christ and you're good. you're good. Why doesn't he do that? Well, a part of the genius of St. Peter's virtue ethics is that it motivates us to do more than just obey rote commandments, right? There is a thing in the Old Testament that God is always, constantly condemning that we would call formalism or dead orthodoxy, where they would have their sacrifices, they would burn their incense, they had their temple, they did everything according to all the little rules that Moses had, but they never gave their heart to God. They weren't sanctified. They didn't put their faith in him or their trust in him. You are not made righteous by following rules. So the Judaizers of the time, they wanted to bind people to this rote obedience and this habit instead of bringing them to actually loving the Lord. 
And of course, they threaten Christians with damnation for not following their traditions. And that's a tale as old as time. We Christians today are very familiar with it. It was present in Rome. It's present in Orthodoxy. And it's a new and challenging up-and-coming thing in the Lutheran Church. <laughs> but St. Peter, whether he had these heretics in mind or not, steers the believer away from such thinking by balancing out the specific commands that we have, you know, the Ten Commandments, the hard commandments of Christ, with the orientation of the heart and the development of the believer's character with virtues. So let's get into some commentary. Chapter 1 verses 22 and 23 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That is a sentence that is chock full of detail and it can be easy for us to get confused here. Let's simplify what that verse says to, to help us expand it out of it. Having purified your souls, love one another, since you have been born again. Or we can even reorder that. Since you have been born again, having purified your souls, love one another. St. Peter passes along the command that our Lord Christ says, Christians must love one another, from John 13, 34, and 35. And then he expands on it. He says, we love one another with agape love on account of being born again through the word. Being born again means, well, we end up with faith and obedience of the truth. And that brings Christians together in fellowship. So note here that there's two kinds of love being brought up, philia and agape. Uh, philia, the natural or brotherly love, which encompasses friendship and cooperation, is preceding agape, the sacrificial love that seeks the benefit of the other for their own sake. St. Peter presumes that you believing in Jesus will produce philia. Philadelphia is where we get that idea, or phileo love. If you have philia for your fellow Christians, that's because you guys share something. You share a common belief in Jesus, and you've all been born again. So you have that bond of brotherhood. Now, is that a command, though, that you should like every other believer on the planet? No, it is just assumed that that should be the case, special circumstances notwithstanding. But he does command us to exercise agape. One's obedience to the truth ought to lead to brotherly love. That should happen naturally. But looking out for one another, that's not going to happen so naturally. Now, having mentioned St. Peter's virtue ethics and contrasting with the specificity of Mosaic law, we do have to clarify. The command to love one another with agape love sounds specific, 
but it's broadly for the exercise of agape as virtue. It's not a command to be exercised like a speed limit. St. Peter doesn't give us this specific action here, like help your elderly neighbor replace the shingles on his roof, or give five days worth of bread to the poor every week. Someone who holds to agape love for his elderly neighbor will do that anyway, without a specific command being given. Verses 24 and 25 say, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So here he's citing Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8, and applying it to our regeneration. Since God's word endures forever, by nature of he who spoke it, the gospel, planted like a seed, is something that makes us become forever. It grows into the renewal of the person and eternal life. This is something that probably calls back to the parable of the sower. Remember, St. Peter was there when Christ gave that parable, so he's kind of alluding to it right now, saying, ah, yes, there is a grass that dies, but there's also a seed that does not perish, God's word. So for the author, it means that the Christian loves other Christians because he is a new creation who will live forever. Now, the text would have remained the same had St. Peter only brought up the last clause of Isaiah 40, verse 8. The word of the Lord remains forever. But he brings up the temporary nature of flesh like grass and everything for a reason. You see, this death also belongs to us. And it is not just something that is in the future. Our death is an already but not yet. Our sinful flesh died when we were baptized. That's Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 6. And the word produced the new creation that we are today. 2 Corinthians 5.17 so we still wrestle with the old Adam as concupiscence and temptations rage on within us, Romans 7. But the character of our life is that I am new. I am now with a new life. And that old dead part of me is trying to take over, so I struggle with it. So St. Peter ties in Isaiah's words as a means of emphasizing the eternal nature of our relationships with other believers. I want to live like I am going to live, because I am born again by virtue of the implanted word the gospel brought to my heart. And so, I don't want to live like somebody who is fleshly and dying and temporary. So he says in chapter 2, verse 1, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Part of practicing agape and philia 
practicing what is eternal is rejecting the practice of wicked behaviors. Embracing virtue means doing away with vice, after all. And you'll note here that St. Peter only chooses one thing in these five uh, vices here that is an actual action. Slander. You know, lying about somebody, bearing false witness specifically. When you look at malice, that's a catch-all term for depravity. It's kaikon in the Greek. Doing stuff from bad motivations. Deceit is ultimately this mercenary or selfish withholding of the truth, but that can manifest in any number of ways, from lying to omitting the truth or failing to inform someone of something they ought to know. Hypocrisy is mask-wearing, assuming a false persona and false identity, usually for personal gain. And then, of course, we understand that envy is coveting and wanting what other people have. All four of these are motivating traits for specific sins, dispositions that harm, the same way that virtues are motivating traits for good works that build up. The vices are aspects of sinful flesh, which is to die, as pointed out in verses 24 and 25 of 1 Peter 1. So they should be shunned. The Christian is a new creation, made immortal by the implanted word, so his entire being rejects that which comes from death. There's a concession, though, in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, which says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The apostle recognizes that the life we have in Christ is new to us, so we are like infants in it. We don't have full knowledge, we can't make all of our decisions on our own, and we rely on God for all of our needs. This isn't to say that you are like a puppet making no decisions whatsoever, but spiritually you very much are a baby. <laughs> but that means that there are two ways of seeing the milk which sustains us in our very souls. The first being God's presence and his blessings as the quote-unquote milk. Citing Psalm 34, verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. The apostle might be exhorting us to long for the Lord himself, thus growing into salvation by faith. An infant can't grow into salvation by himself, after all, necessitating that he be fed from some other source. God's presence, his care, his blessings... And even Christ's body and blood granted to us in the sacrament, these are the source of our growth as Christians. Remember, faith, without it being faith in Christ, doesn't mean much. You can have a whole lot of faith and a whole lot of different things, but we place our faith in Jesus and in our God who can and does provide for, and sustain us. And as we grow in the faith, we begin to crawl, walk, speak, and embrace the life of a mature believer. 
but even then we stay close to He who saves us. A second understanding or interpretation here is that the pure spiritual milk is basic doctrine, in the same vein as St. Paul and the author of Hebrews using the term from 1 Corinthians 3 and Hebrews 5. It's a valid interpretation of the verse, closely related to the first. Just as a Christian cannot live without God's presence and providence, nor can he continue on without the word rightly divided and preached. You don't just hear law and gospel once, decide you believe in Jesus, say the sinner's prayer, and then you're good for the rest of your life. Oh no, we need to constantly be evangelized and re-evangelized throughout this Christian life, even when we are already believers. So with the analogy of the infant, it's unheard of for an infant to go without milk, which continues its life. In the same way, Christians don't just eat once and then keep going, right? We need the word fitly spoken, driven right into our souls and reifying our faith. Now, of course, you do end up with solid food later as you mature as a believer, but you still have those basic doctrines like the gospel as the foundation from which all the more advanced and difficult to understand things come. Something that the author of Hebrews never denies, by the way. Some people think you're supposed to move on from the gospel, and it's incredibly silly of them. But anyway, we are inching closer and closer to the central, beautiful thesis statement that St. Peter gives on what Jesus has done for us. But until then, let's focus on what St. Peter says throughout this coming week, that as we obey the truth, putting our faith in Christ, yearning for him, his presence, and for the basic teachings of the faith which sustain us, yearning for the sacraments, we understand that we're born anew, and on account of that we have fellowship with other believers. Well, let's start exercising that agape love and looking out for them. Until next week, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.